0: Welcome to another episode of sicker than most. I'm your host, Steve. And today I have a very sought after man in the recovery industry. <laughs> this this guy has an incredible resume. Um, but most importantly, he's got an incredible story. You know, um, he some of some of my listeners may know him. Some of you guys may not. Um, but, you know, regardless, he's got an incredible story Um, he's got a lot of, you know, um, he's got a lot of things behind him, a lot of experience in recovery, in working in, in treatment, um, and just overall, just overall growth as a human, you know, um, he is on the board of CCAP, um, you know, we'll, we'll get more into, into CCAP if you don't know what it is. Um, you know, he he owns his own consulting company helping, um, rehabs all over the United States. Um he is a family man. Three kids? Three kids. Three kids and a wife. Um and he has 18 years of continuous sobriety. That's right. In a row, no days off. <laughs> not even not even weekends or major holidays. <laughs>
1: That's right. So without further ado, how how are we doing, Devin? Thanks, Steve. Well, it's an honor to be here, doing really good. Yeah, just excited to to be here with you, man. Yeah, thank you. Know, you. I've, I've appreciated connecting with you, and this sicker than most. It's pretty awesome. So yeah. I, uh, it's it's amazing to be a part of this platform. Thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. thank you for
0: being on. You know, when I first met you, it was at a um, at like a staff meeting, and uh, we were talking about how you had a podcast with your sponsor, and I was like, oh, yeah. I got a podcast with my sponsor. Yeah. And then, um, you know, things just happened, and we, you know, we worked it out, and um, now. I, honored to have you on the show. Thanks, you man. know, it's been a long time coming. For sure. And um, you know, so so without further ado, um, you're. It seems like you're. You got a million things going on, right? And and all gifts of sobriety, right? And so, what
1: what is what does your life look like today? Uh, it's amazing. Yeah, truly blessed. And what it looks like today is, yeah, uh, you know, eighteen years of sobriety, and and uh, you know, can't take that for granted mm-hmm. at all. Um, you know, working in, in treatment, you, 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 you know, you can, lo- you can lose sight of that really quick because you make your recovery, you know, your work. And, and I saw that happen early on in my recovery, uh, not to me, but to other people. And so I, you know, got to learn how, um, how important it is to separate work from recovery. Right. So, and I would consider being a part of this podcast, being, you know, participating in my recovery. So, um, but just, you know, I have, I have a business, um, I've, uh, owned and operated a treatment center, you know, for multiple years and, um, three, you know, beautiful, beautiful boys that, uh, are, are just the highlight of my life and, and a beautiful wife and, um, yeah, you know, a house and just all that good stuff. Anything I could have ever asked for. And, uh, and then some, and then some, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. So, um. So yeah, and, and um, it's, it's a great life, it really is. So these things like being on the board of CCAP, working, you know, doing consulting, uh, helping the treatment field. You know, I learned that uh, it, it's, for me, it's raising a higher sense of purpose. And, um, and that's helping people find recovery in whatever journey that looks like. And, and oftentimes people need treatment. And so, um, it's, there's a, they're a vulnerable population, you yeah. know, and I was that, I was a part of that population. And so, uh, I found, you know, great sense, definitely, you know, spiritual connection to, uh, to helping, you know, that population be protected, find treatment, and then live beautiful lives. And, you know, this, it's like, you get it, you know, you help one person and they're, if it's a... Grown person, their family's lives improve, their ch- children's lives improve. They get back to work. The economy improves. I mean, from the individual to the to the community, all the way to the society level. You know, help yeah. helping people is where it's at. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of
0: as we were ta- as you were talking, I kind of had this this question pop in my mind real quick. I know it was it's kind of off topic, but do you um, have you noticed a big change in the field of recovery because you you've been working in this field for for how many years
1: now? Um, let's see, eight, 18 years. Oh, so since you
0: pretty much first got yeah, sober? Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I got hired at the treatment center. I, I've actually only worked at two treatment centers full time. Mm-hmm. Um, first one was on when I got sober at, and uh, they, they should have never hired me. <laughs> I, mean, I was rarely <laughs> sober. I'm grateful they did, but um, but I've I've learned I probably wouldn't you know do that with somebody else. But it just worked out for me. <laughs> Uh, but can, yeah. can
0: we can we say on air how much clean time you had when they hired you?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. How, <laughs> how I much? Haven't. Let's see. So I got sober in November of 2002. I got hired in, in March of 2003. So whatever that is, you December. know, five months, December. I think. Nice. Yeah, or nice. less, somewhere uh, in there. Okay. Yeah. But, but since that time
0: that you started um, working in the field um, till now, mm-hmm. what's like a big change that you've noticed? Like the, for like the positive?
1: Yeah. Um well, it's it's bringing in the the medical aspect to treatment and and then really giving recovery the the credence that it deserves. Um, because of the work I've done nationally, I noticed that recovery is really accepted widely and is more even worked into governmental um, you know sp- sponsorship and licensing and all that mm-hmm. on the East Coast, whereas here on the West Coast, it's more treatment based and a little less recovery based. So one of the areas that I've been able to help with in with with cap and the work I do on the advocacy level is to try to make recovery have a position here on the West Coast. And what that looks like is is really, you know, advocating for housing for people in recovery, um, because if we left it up to these groups of people that want to discriminate, then there wouldn't be recovery housing. Um, you know, are we talking about like like uh, residential
0: like, treatment or like sober living? No, like
1: sober living. Okay, so treatment, which is being, which is, it's
0: it seems like for someone who works in the field, it's like, and someone who's been in sober living, it's essential. Yes, there you can't. It's like you can't have a my opinion, you know, anyone can beat me up after the podcast if it's wrong, but, but my opinion is without an, like effective PHP, IOP, OP level of care. Yeah. There has to be a safe place for them to go home at night. That's exactly right. You know, otherwise it's like you're, what what's it going to do? Yeah, you know, have them learn some stuff for a couple hours a day, and then right. they go home to a toxic environment.
1: And you know? and you know, make a mistake, that's where the real work happens. Is mm-hmm. in in those levels of care. You know, that's when you're you're tapping into recovery. Now, you know, treatment. You're under the care of a doctor. You may even be on some narcotic medications of some sort, right? You're you're getting stabilized, and um, really, it's just about safety, right? Safety yeah. and stabilization. Let's just. You know, halt whatever crisis is going on, halt the use, get a person stabilized. And then, you know, residential treatment is an opportunity for a person to really find out what's going on with themselves and, and set out a plan. But the real work is done in an outpatient setting and, and recovery. Yeah. So that's where treatment and recovery crossover. Mm-hmm. But at some point, you, you got to let the, the treatment, you know, the treatment field go, you know, as a, as a client, if you will. And um, and then go participate in recovery, and that's you know in life, that's uh, working, it's going to school, it's it's doing all that stuff, and ultimately helping other people, you know, in some way. So right. um, so anyways, the uh, I've I've been able to you know participate in both one more really I make a living out of helping treatment, and then I've really fulfilled a higher sense of purpose. Um, on, on treatment as well, but advocating for people in recovery.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. And that's what you do primarily with CCAP. Yeah. Okay. Nice, nice.
1: And in fact, I I can't, you know, go any further without just mentioning a a big win that we had. And so, and and the advocacy level is on the legislative level. Mm -hmm. Um, but also like with, uh, you know, helping sober livings figure out how to run successful businesses, um, helping them get accredited if they are certified. Um, and then doing recovery happens. So every, every year they have a big, you know, September is like recovery month. And mm-hmm. so making that a big deal and, and drawing, um, drawing attention to recovery and honoring people in recovery. But um, at the legislative level, so um, down in, in Southern California where I live, there's just been a number. It started five years ago of um, discriminatory ordinances that were created by cities that said, basically said, people in recovery can't live together, and really, yeah, and and nobody can tell any protected class, much less you know people in recovery. But you know, you can't tell different races where they can live. You can't tell pregnant women where they can live. You can't tell people over sixty where they can live. You know, it, so you it sounds can. almost as crazy as saying. Okay, three pregnant women
0: can't live in the same house together. Exactly.
1: That's exactly. It just doesn't right. make any sense. It doesn't. But when you're you're in the middle of it, not you, but individuals, uh-huh. um, it, it's a it's an attitude called NIMBY, and it stands for "Not in My Backyard." So it's this, and unfortunately, it's it's one of the most discriminatory things that can happen because it becomes acceptable, mm. and these cities try to make it acceptable, try to say that they don't want to institutionalize their neighborhoods, they don't want to you know, this, that, and, and try to just, you know, really m- make it seem like it's okay, and it's, and it's not okay, right, and right. so we've, we've fought this for years, and um, so the the governor just um, backed the Department of Housing, and so each one of these cities that, that made these discriminatory ordinances that really have impacted a lot of people in recovery and, and took away their ability to live mm-hmm. together in the city, they're all getting these letters that basically say hey look you've we're going to offer you technical assistance on how to rescind this ordinance and you have by this date to do that and if you don't do that then you're essentially going to be fined uh, in in the form of um, a lack of funding and or actual sanction fines um, until that ordinance is rescinded that's right so it's just a a huge win a pr release went out yesterday and uh and i got to make a little comment on there but you know, every now and then, when you're when you're doing advocacy, sometimes it feels like um, like you're just doing it to do it. You know, you're doing yeah, it because no, you're you passionate there's about. No it. end in sight. Every yeah. now and then, you get a win, and yeah. this was like just a huge win. Wow! You know? So wow. That, considering Southern California is like
0: a huge recovery hub. Yeah, you know, so much yes. great recovery down there. Absolutely. You know, you know? absolutely. So um, let's let let's talk about what you know what you're what your story looks like right from like start to finish you have all this amazing stuff happening right now mm-hmm. right and you know is it is it fair to say that like when you first started none of
1: this was on your sights mm-hmm. right not yeah. even not even close i couldn't even look at somebody in the eye mm-hmm. you know i was uh very shameful um you know early in recovery and and so yeah there's a lot of work between there and now Right. but how i got to recovery was um I, I grew up on a 72 acre cattle ranch out in colorado and uh, in a town of 400 people it's now 800 people had a wonderful wonderful family growing up they're all teachers you know and growing up on a farm you know and and probably some of our listeners grew up on farms but you still find ways to get <laughs> into trouble oh, yeah. i <laughs> found ways to get into trouble to to make it personal and so i you know and i did and i I got into, you know, heavy drinking and, and doing some drugs, you know, dabbled in drugs and all that um, pretty early, you know, I, th- I want to say like sixth grade, you know, and, and stuff like that. But was that kind of the scene at the time? Was it was it like the party scene or did you kind of seek out that
0: that type of like lifestyle?
1: You know, it, no, it just kind of, you know, the opportunities came, but I, I, you know, I had that itch to try it and to, you know, see what that's all about um, it wasn't until later that I realized I had a problem with it. But, uh, but certainly, um, you know, when you, when you try something and I know you know this, then you're comfortable trying it again or trying something else. And, you know, and so, um, you know, by the time I was 17 years old, um, my family was saying, Hey, look, you, you can't live the way you're, you're living. You can't make the decisions you're, you're going out and partying and all that. And, uh, and I said, okay, well, I'm going to leave, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I, uh, I lived with a buddy of mine, um, in a trailer of a basement for like my last year of high school. And I don't know how I got through it, but, but uh-huh. I did. And, uh, we called it the basement and, um, the basement the that bas- just has
0: like the, the perfect start to
1: any good, like stoner <laughs> oh, movie, like dazing. Right. If you, oh, let's go to the basement. The basement. Yeah. yeah the <laughs> basement. Right. Yeah. And it, I think we called it the underground too. It was just you know, and it, it was fun, and and uh, you know, I I wasn't making great decisions as as you know we do as we're um, you know falling into um, a life of of alcoholism and addiction. But yeah, like I said, somehow I got through I got through high school, and uh, and I I knew I wanted to do college, but I wasn't sure what that looked like. So all of my family are teachers, and um, and so school was like an important thing. And, um, so I, I went to Phoenix about what I could put together was like a scholarship for graphic design. Right. And, um, and so I went to a graphic design school, but when I, when I got to Phoenix and this was from Colorado, all all of our friends, when they finished school, high school, they either went to like Phoenix or Durango's a town nearby or up to Denver. And, um, I, I chose Phoenix, but like Phoenix, Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and uh, started going to graphic design school, but I started using methamphetamine heavily out there with a friend that I had grown up with um, from my town, and and that was the first time I had, I had tried it was there, but I tell you like right away, and and my friend warned me said, hey look, once you use this, um, there's it's you're really not going to be able to stop, and so I actually I remember I had that in my head, I was like, okay, well I'm just going to use this the rest of my life, and um you know it went downhill real real quick and so my I couldn't go to school you know it's just when you're doing math it's uh it's tough to go to school (laughs) and and, would you
0: say it just you had a bunch of like you know the classic you know tweaker cliche like you know you 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 got a million things going on and doing completing none of them yeah yeah absolutely
1: yeah I'm that person um so and, and it wasn't pretty, you know, I got pretty skinny and, mm-hmm. and you don't see that happening to yourself, right? No. But, but my friends did and that's what happened and, you know, thank God for them because they did, they, they mentioned it to my family. They said, hey, he's not doing well. I remember they talked to me about, they said, well, you know, you might need to go to like an institution or something and, and uh, we want to address your mental health. I was thinking they want to put me in a psych ward like that's you know I'm not going to do that so I avoided you know that that whole confrontation for a minute but they uh they they did an intervention on me and invited my friends in and it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I said yes and I remember we were it was one of those where you say yes and you just go right so no time to think and you know pack a bag but I went to a place called Cottonwood Day Tucson that's in Tucson, Arizona, and it's still around today. I think it's under different ownership. Now, is that like substance abuse or
0: mental health mainly? Substance abuse. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but I mean, I, I have mental health issues, and um, but but I think that's how my family, when they first approached me about it, that's how they approached me, and and they didn't gotcha, know. Gotcha. They, br- they brought an interventionist in to help them, and uh, I couldn't even tell you what his name was. I remember he was an like, uh, older gentleman with a beard, but... Led, you Could know, have been Gandalf. Yeah, <laughs> you never know. He, he led the process and it it worked. So, yeah. So I went there and it was a 28 day program. Um, you know, I was chasing you know girls around <laughs> in the program and you know quickly realized you know you, you take away the drugs and you got this hole inside of you and yeah. you won't, you know I was filling it with uh, you know cigarettes and you know trying to find, get into a relationship and stuff like that, but. Anyways, I, um, I finished the program successfully and they had referred me to an aftercare program because they said, hey, well, what do you want to do? And I wanted to go to school. That was really important because I had totally failed at it there in Phoenix. And so they said, well, there's a place in Texas, uh, connected with, um, I think it's, uh, uh University of Texas, Austin, mm-hmm. but they had a collegiate recovery, um, uh, community down there oh, it was, nice. they were one of the first ones and so that was one option and then Newport Beach was another option to go to a place called Silver Living by the Sea and they showed me the pamphlet and there's the peninsula and you know the whole reason I went to Phoenix is I, I wanted to get out of this small farm town and go to like a tropical place so Phoenix had palm trees but <laughs> I always knew I but, wanted but no to, beach no beach <laughs> so I always knew I wanted to come to California I didn't think it would be for treatment but right. yeah but my dad on Father's Day pick me up from the treatment center that I had completed. And we drove straight through. And I remember we came up through Laguna Beach. And I don't know if you've ever been through Laguna Beach, but it is mm. beautiful. Oh, yeah. And there's a place out in Colorado called Telluride, which um, was somewhat near where I grew up. And I was thinking this is like Telluride, but on the ocean, you know, there's like mm. nice cars, and it's kind of hippie. And cool and all that so i just fell in love immediately and and i remember driving through there and saying i'm gonna figure out how to stay here somehow you know and so uh but i went through a program there and and met a lot of great people including a girlfriend you know nice (laughs) so i uh i can really you know tell people what not to do because i've i've done it but uh (laughs) But I, I got through that program, and the, the one thing was is I, I found a girlfriend, and I thought she was the one, and, you know, she had her own battles, and I was able to put it together eight and a half months over, you know, through through the whole thing from the first treatment center and then that treatment center, and I went there because they had a school program. So you went to community college during the day, and then you would attend treatment as well, and they supported you in both, and it was called the TEACH program, and a friend of mine who later became my business partner is the gentleman that started that program, and it was it was good. It had good outcomes, and I enjoyed it. Where I feel like I went wrong was um, this relationship. So that person literally became my higher power, um, and and that you know I didn't even realize I was doing that, but uh, I was so. I had such a lack of self-confidence that I couldn't just be me. That I needed somebody to make me whole. That I, I've, you know, I, I lost myself in the relationship, and so what happened was it was a, a, a on a whim, we decided to go on a snowboarding trip up mm-hmm. to Lake Arrowhead or Big Bear or something like that, and while we were up there, we, as a group, there three of us, made the decision to drink, you know, and and I remember saying the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer and. But I, I had, I had, foregone my recovery in order to be in this relationship, and we had made a decision to drink, and I, and I went with it, and I said, okay, well, I, this relationship and, and what we're doing here is more important than my recovery. Mm. So it was really scary that I, I threw it away like that, right. you know. I, now, did you
0: at the time identify any of that, or was it not till later
1: where you realized, oh, that's I I think I realized that it was it was scary that it, that this eight and a half months and the work that I put in had left so quickly. But what I realized later was how my lack of self confidence and and lack of identity and just being me um, was and and having to be in a relationship was was a part of that. Right. Gotcha. So gotcha. I just was not. I still wasn't comfortable in my skin. I don't know how long that takes, but. You know, I, I was I was not there, and so this relationship made me feel a little more comfortable. You know, and so um, so we stayed relapsed together for two and a half years and tried to keep it a secret. I tried to live this lifestyle that I was sober and I wasn't, and I think people knew. You know, but. Right. Uh, but unfortunately, I I ran into some trouble and um, I I wound up in jail, you know, and mm-hmm. and uh, that happens to us. And that was the intervention that happened at the time. It didn't stop me from, um, you know, drinking or using, but but it it was you know one of those steps along the way. Right. So um, at some point, I needed to go back into treatment, and the gig was up. My family knew. And so what happened was my my father drove out here from Colorado and, you know, just swooped me up and said, hey, like, it's it's time. You know, it's it's uh." so he actually I remember he took me back to Colorado and uh, I didn't stop drinking during that time and, uh, you know, made a total fool of myself. So the incomprehensible demoralization that we talk about, I experienced it then more than ever. Cause now the, fi-
0: the f- whole family saw what you had, what you had become basically. Yes.
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, very, you know, very embarrassing and, and all that just n- not the person I ever want to be ever again. You right. Know? Did, so. did
0: you, at the time, did you ever think that you could become that person? Like that drive back, were you still kind of like, maybe I still got this, maybe they're overreacting.
1: Yeah. You know what happened is uh, the the girl had uh, broken up with me, and uh, and for good reason. Like, you know, I was I was not being you know a healthy person at all. Right. And so, um, so that that was the right thing for her to do. I couldn't accept it, and just wanted Mm -hmm. to, I just wanted to beat myself up, you know. And so, and that came through drinking um, mainly at that time. I had resorted to mainly just alcohol and and marijuana but uh, so the meth never really came back into the picture after that no it was it was in the picture in my relapse but um but not to the extent that it was before i got sober the first gotcha time. yeah gotcha. so but i i truly found out that i was an alcoholic i think i, I had questioned that and i said well you know i dabbled in alcohol and this and that so i mean that was one thing that was good for me as i came to an acceptance mm-hmm. point that i was an alcoholic and um, so I, I came back to California after that uh, demoralization, and um, I went into a treatment center that was literally a ranch, um, and they had no room, and so they put me on a couch and my alarm clock were the amount of flies that you know were on my stomach. It was called the Tenacre Ranch, and there was just so many flies inside this place. And so that was that's what you woke up to. <laughs> yeah, in the morning. it was <laughs> like you feel enough of them, and it would like wake me up. Oh shit! You know, but I uh, it was the best thing that that ever happened to me. And, and um, was that long term? No, it was very short term. Um, in fact, I I was going to a detox center, and you no, know, what it was, I was going to just bypass everything and go to sober living. But I I went there, but it was really like a low income, sober living and and you know i was thinking i was you know a little better than that you know and i had nothing to my name i should have totally been there but i was like i got scared and i was like i think i need detox and it's and so they're like okay well we're gonna put you at the ranch so mm-hmm. it was it was exactly what i needed it was um you know not not flashy not good because i had gone like cottonwood to tucson is a great place and very mm-hmm. nice and, and living by the sea is in newport beach and so right. i had like created this thing that I deserved that in my head, you know, for, you know, just egotistical stuff. So it was good for me to go to a ranch and sleep on a couch and wake up with flies. And we were sitting in a meeting and they actually had horses and pigs and stuff. And a a pig, they had a meeting. I got there on a Friday night. It was called pigs are us. I didn't know the name of the meeting, (laughs) but I'm sitting in the back of the meeting and and I had stopped drinking. Um, And so I think I was, I was in withdrawal, you Uh know, a little delusional. But the pig went walking through the room. They had a pig called Wilhelmina that was inside Wilhelmina. Yeah Wilhelmina. <laughs> she lived inside of the house, you know, she'd go outside, but she she'd sleep with the, she was a house pig. She was a house pig, big <laughs> pig. and I was just like I was sweating. I was like, is anybody else seeing this pig? you know? And so sure enough, you know, I, I found it. So, so the pig was real. The pig was real. Okay, you know <laughs> so that was good. but yeah, you know, that's that was my low, you know, but also the spark of a new journey. So at that point, what I realized is, uh, I needed to stay out of a relationship and stick close to Alcoholics Anonymous Mm -hmm. for an extended period of time. And, uh, and that was good for me. And so I, I did that. I just, you know, head down, you know, living by the principles, working the steps, had a really good sponsor and, um. The treatment center that I, that I ended up at was also called the ranch. which was called Sunrise Recovery Ranch, just down the street from Tane Ranch. And they gave me the opportunity, after I finished, to volunteer and also live in a house. It was actually a trailer on the property of the ranch. So you had the ranch home up here. That's where all the clients stayed. And then you had a, a basically a staffing trailer down below and and they hired me like i said um with about five months of sobriety and i lived in that trailer i ended up living there for for two years Mm -hmm. in that trailer and worked you know and and uh
0: so so what did you do there while you were working were you mainly like a driver a tech yeah
1: started i I did graveyard you know tech um i even cooked some food just every position except the clinician so Mm -hmm. i I did, you know, think that I wanted to be a clinician and, you know, different thoughts thinking, ah, I want to be a doctor too. And different, different things like that. But it just never, it it ended up not being the path for me. Mm -hmm. So I stayed in operations and I ended up working there for seven and a half years. Um, but I met my wife, um, after a year of recovery, you know, I was really just, I need to figure out who I am. And I did that enough where I feel like I attracted a healthy person you know and um god bless my wife i mean she really truly is a wonderful wonderful person that is healthy and and it showed me that that i could be in a i didn't know what a healthy relationship looked like you know Mm -hmm. and um and I, i meant to mention this but the um that girlfriend unfortunately died of an overdose and we had oh, we had already broke up and and all that but when did uh, you find that out was that like into your your new sobriety like it was, current sobriety? yeah it was into my new sobriety okay. yeah yeah and uh you know and i just w- we stayed in s- somewhat in contact um through the treatment center that I we're at together and 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 so soberly by the sea owned sub recovery ranch so i ended up working for the treatment center that that i went to you know back in 1999 2000 but then also um, where I went in 2002 when I when I ended up getting sober gotcha. and staying sober, so it was the men's intensive inpatient program mm-hmm. where they would go there for 30 days and then they would go down to the beach for you know recovery housing and aftercare and go into outpatient. So working with men in their first 30 days was powerful for me. You know mm-hmm. I I was able to um, you know connect and and pull on that that energy and. Um, be comfortable with myself as as a man, you mm-hmm. know, and 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 that was really important. So, but I I attracted my wife. I actually met her through my sponsor, and uh, and she's from Bolivia, out of all places. And so my sponsor's wife was from Bolivia too, and oh, they're not related. But uh, Bolivian people love to get together and really just enjoy each other and, 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 you know, a lot of times families get together and they, they drink and stuff like that. But, but my wife doesn't drink at all and, and certainly doesn't do any drugs. And, and I love that about her. Um, and, and I just, I think it would be funny if she did drink, who, who knew what, you know, who knows what <laughs> the type of drinker she'd be. I was wondering, is she'd be, you know, a crier or is she'd be violent? You know, like, who knows, but it doesn't matter. And, um, and so we ended up getting married um, at about two and a half years of sobriety. At two and a half years, we were engaged for a period of time. Asked her to marry me out at Laguna Beach. and um, Nice. Yeah. Oh, like with the sunset and everything? I think oh, it was nice. like midday, yeah, some somewhere around there. Um, but, yeah, I was out on a rock, and it was good. I was nervous, you know. I was like, gosh, should I do this? And But I did. Uh, I prayed about it for a year. I talked to my brother, my brother's a, a faithful man. And we went on a camping trip. And... It was kind of funny because I, I had amends to make, but a big one was to my brother. Mm-hmm. And and so I went out to Colorado, we went on a camping trip. So this was before I asked my wife to marry me. And I was like, okay, this is my chance to make amends to my brother. And so we go on this camping trip and we've got our camping gear and we, we hike all day to get to this point um, that's called, um, I think it's called, it's uh, uh, Mer- the Maroon Bells. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was It's like out around Aspen, around that area. Okay. It's beautiful and so we, Go on top of where this waterfall is, and I remember I set down my stuff, and, and my sleeping bag goes rolling off this cliff, like oh, off the mountain. I'm like, oh, you know, and we're up there, and it's uh-huh. getting dark, and so it's so funny that I ended up like sharing a sleeping bag <laughs> with my brother. <laughs> And, and I was like, I wanted to make amends to him and, and get closer, you know, but not like this. And God was like, Yeah, we'll share sleeping bag. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. It's so great. So, oh, man. yeah, so we reconciled. But it was actually on that hike down. He said, Hey, if you, if you really want to marry the scroller, you know, to pray on it for a right, year. And right. and I did that, and the answer was yes. And so. Yeah, so I worked at that treatment center, just kind of working my way up and always stayed in operations, but ultimately became the operations manager, operations director. I moved out of that staffing trailer and my wife and I lived together. And we um, we ended up having our first child um, after five years of marriage. And so Ethan was born um, in 2010. and And that was the year that I had basically kind of tapped out at where I could go in that, you know, in that position and right. found a, a, a gentleman that I had worked with in the past. I had taken a client to court and I actually saw him at the courthouse and, hey, how you doing? And he goes, yeah, I'm working with uh, this place called National Therapeutic Services. That was the name of it. Oh, and- so were you guys both taking clients to the mm-hmm. court? Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. And we saw each other yeah. and he was like, yeah, you know, shoot it over your resume. We should check it out. So... I did and, and then I met a gentleman named Mike Netherton and he's a, a, a dear friend of mine now. But he was the former president and CEO of the Betty Ford Center and he left there to go join Northbound as, as an owner and to be the CEO at Northbound Treatment Centers and, and so I had and a couple of people who worked at the Betty Ford Center. I asked about him, I say, Hey, how's Mike? you know and he's like, Oh man, he's a man of his word, like you're gonna love him and I met with him and he ran down his seven priorities and i think work was like number 5 you know and it started with you know his higher power and his relationship with higher power and family and i was just like i need to be close to him you know right. like he's he's and that he's, says something someone who's a ceo of a, yeah.
0: of a of a huge treatment center and very busy it's yeah. a very intense job right? right but yet their number one priority is their
1: connection with their higher power that's right that's right. That says something. I was you like, know? he's got his priorities in order. Yeah. You know? So um, so he hired me. He always boasted that I was his first and, and, and best hire. And I, I love that. I had learned a little bit about compliance while I was at the organization before. Mm-hmm. At some point they said, hey, we're going to get our accreditation. So You're going to be the health and safety officer and the risk management officer and quality improvement and and figure it out. And I was like, okay, well, do I make more money? They're like, no. (laughs) So, but I was, you know, up for the challenge. So, we went through an accreditation and they let they let me lead it. And I learned enough, you know, to to feel, you know, like I I was comfortable with it. So, when I got hired at Northbound Treatment Center, um, well, it was National Therapy Services. We ended up doing a DBA called Northbound or Northbound Treatment Services, they hired me as the Director of Quality and Compliance to start out with, but we quickly knew how um, I had an operational background, so it turned into Director of Operations and Compliance, I think eventually Executive Director, and, and then I moved into a Chief Operating Officer position, which is when I um, earned equity in the company. So I, I was an owner of this treatment center for, for a few years with Mike, and then another gentleman named Paul and i loved it i mean they were great partners we had a wonderful time we we helped a lot of people and and it was truly amazing and mike had neared his retirement he had said i you know he he had a quick you know plan to be there and shape things up and 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 leave but one impression he he made on us was teaching us about organizational health and he brought that to northbound treatment centers and I, I've never heard of that before and I was very skeptical.
0: Well, Elaborate on that. What is what is organizational health look? And is this just only pertain to treatment centers or does it pertain no. to like all companies?
1: Yeah, it pertains to all companies, but I don't know anything else other than treatment. Uh-huh. So I could act like I knew how that worked in another company and, or another industry <laughs> and I, I don't. Um, there is a consultant that I really buy into um, and he's an author. His name's Patrick Lencioni and you know how like, Certain areas of discipline, you'll say, "Oh, okay, well, that's the you know, that's the front runner." Like they, mm-hmm. the, the work they put out is what people should listen to. And for me, it's Patrick Lencioni when it comes to organizational health. And he's actually right out of the Bay Area up here with with the consulting group called the Table Group. They work with companies like Southwest Airlines. So I can see how organizational health applies to other industries, but right. but I don't I don't really uh, I don't I don't know that firsthand. Um, but a good example of how that might apply is, um, he actually tells a story about working with Southwest and he says that, you know, a a measure of success with organizational health is, is the culture of the organization. And so Southwest is actually a pretty cool organization and I'll tie this back into treatment, but, um, number one, because, um, it's, it's, a. It's pretty high risk, you know, flying people all over, you know, the world in these um, metal machines, you know, number one. So they have to do it really impeccably. And then, two, they have a great culture. So they they have fun. You know, you see them with they'll they'll be in the Hawaiian shirts and the shorts. And it's not the normal, um, you know, um, stale, you know, um, bureaucratic uh, feel that you get. Plus, they did the hub and spoke model. And their whole mission was to uh, make uh, travel affordable, really. Right. And That's so, why they, they, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but Southwest doesn't have
0: a first class. That's right. Spot. Yeah, I don't. I, you airplanes. know, I don't.
1: Th- I don't want to say that for
0: sure, but because uh, every Southwest flight that I've been in, in the past five years. Yeah, you've never seen that. I've never seen really. it. I just yeah. flew last November, and I was. I never really thought about it. Yeah.
1: And but I was like, there's no first class here. Plus that open seating, you know how, yeah. the, how that works. Yeah, they check uh, in the night before. And mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. and they perfected a bunch of things. You know, it was like one plane. They they got to turnaround time that that hub and spoke model. Um, that and they have love field and 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 love too. You know, the whole heart and all that. So, the, all that ties into culture. But the story that they told was that the CEO. You, you know, they joke when they when the plane takes off. Right when they're doing the safety. Thing you know they they make
0: all the yeah they all have those little one liners yeah well they make fun of it like they have
1: a good time during it and what happened there was another CEO of an organization on a Southwest flight and they made fun during the safety presentation and she just couldn't you know reconcile that and so she wrote the CEO of Southwest a letter saying Uh you know I I can't believe that you would joke during the safety presentation and you you know you, you need to change this. And so the CEO of Southwest wrote her back and he wrote her one line, one sentence was all it was on the Southwest letterhead, but it said I'm sorry to see you go. And so that was their culture, they're sticking to it, they're they're fun, they're they're going to democratize travel and have fun doing it and make it affordable at the same time. You know, so how that applies to treatment is that it's also high risk, you know. We're dealing with people's lives. Yes, absolutely. Like seriously, dealing with people's lives, and um, and so it's it's something that that we should do impeccably. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, mis- mistakes aren't fatal, so we need to. They can be right, right. But but we need to have room to be able to teach and grow people and 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 pour into our staff, but. Uh, with that, you know, it's the the culture of an organization. At the end of the day, is is okay. Well, what is what what's our singleness of purpose, and and how can that be extremely clear to everybody? You know, when when the CEO wrote back that one liner is extremely clear. That's who they are. You know, if you don't like it, we're not going to apologize for it. This is this is who we are. And, uh, and some of the treatment centers that I've worked with and the one I met you at, um, you know, it, it has that. You know, it's, it's that, that culture, what, you know, sometimes we refer to as the vibe. Yeah. And, uh, and how that trickles down into the care of the clients is extremely important because at, at the end of the day, the helpers, me and you who are working treatment, we are here for a reason and we have our own work to do. And um, and so if if we have kind of a a container of, okay, well, this is an acceptable way to behave and how to operate. And and I know extremely clearly what we're here to do. Number one, mission before margin. Right. Number two, client comes first. Um, Number three, we're we're going to help people. It's going to be awesome. We're going to have a good time doing it, you know? Yeah. And and uh, it's funny because addiction – well, I guess it's
0: not funny. This is more a cliche. But addiction is a really painful, traumatizing, and just all-around – pardon my French – fucked-up experience for any human being to go through. Right. Right? Right. Especially when you do finally hit that rock bottom. But – Getting sober can be one of the, you know, most meaningful, enjoyable, you know, sometimes even fun, mm-hmm. like funnest if that's even a word. Yeah, experience at least that's by not been my experience this has been the funnest. Yeah, experience of all time I've had. That's right. I had a lot of fun drinking and using, but I have not more, but I have a substantial enough amount of fun in my sobriety today to be like, you know what, this is. I am doing the right thing by being sober. I'm not that's wasting right. my youth being sober when I could be doing
1: drugs and getting drunk. Yeah, that's know? right. One of the most challenging yet most rewarding things that, that you are ever doing, and, and that's a gift to us, right. that we get to go through that and then help people go through that. So to tie it back in into the, the Northbound, we started ad- adopting organizational health, and I just bought in line, hook, and sinker because it, it worked. I right. saw how... When we took care of the staff and we said, "Hey, this is how this is how we're running the organization," and that's where the name Northbound came from. We said, "Okay, we're heading in this direction. We'd love for you to join us, and uh, we're going to be unapologetic about it." and And at the end of the day, it's going to be awesome. We're going to help a lot of people, and so um, I ended up uh, eventually leaving that organization. The industry went through some hits. Uh, it really did in about 2018 and mainly, I think, in Southern California, other parts of the world too, Florida. But there was a lot of fraud and abuse going on. Um, n- none, you know, that I was involved with, but I certainly, you know, saw it happen around me, all around me in Southern California, you right. know. And Well, and it's, it's, just,
0: it's just, that's kind of, what happens right when the when there's a lot of money involved in mm-hmm. something the evil comes out yeah people
1: right? f- people find ways right yeah, yeah so th- it's that- just
0: it's just horrible to see it when it's coming around and when it, when it's negatively affecting like a like you said what did you say it was a uh, uh something population vulnerable vulnerable mm-hmm. i can't remember the word a vo- when it when it's a negatively affecting a vulnerable population oh yeah you have to see it and it's those the the you know the people who are just in it for the money. Right? Yeah,
1: very predatory. Yeah, just yeah. everything we would not believe in. You right. know, and that, so yeah, it's like
0: just it's that when you get sober, you get this conscience. Mm-hmm. You know, right? And you just you can't sleep at night if yeah. you, you know, if I even if I, you know, take someone's lighter after smoking a cigarette outside, just do that. Some of my younger fans know this, right? You take a smoke a cigarette and ask for a lighter, and you accidentally put it in your pocket right yeah. after a meeting or something like that. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, I need to find this person that's right not now. Okay. Like the next day, I need to give them their lighter back. Yeah, that's But right. yet, you see these people who you know who aren't in recovery mm-hmm. running these you know these these huge treatment organizations. And not to say people who aren't recovery who run are, who run treatment centers are bad people, but mm-hmm. you can just see how. A lot you know when it becomes about the money and not about helping
1: yeah yeah well and it's uh I mean you can be in recovery and um and not behave in the way that you would hope somebody in recovery would behave that's too. true we see you we see that happen you see too. it all the yeah. time yeah, yeah. so and, and every person to their own but you you get you get what you get so you know where I'm going with that is uh um the industry took a hit because the the payers the insurance companies said hey a lot of fraud and abuse is going on so we're going to slash the rates and and they did you know mm-hmm. so the a lot of a lot of providers were forced to go in network and and figure things out plus there was a lot of uh, NIMBY what i talked about you know through the advocacy work I mean this not in my backyard and discriminatory ordinances happening so the business that that i was a partner in had had changed a lot over the years and right. both me and mike said hey at some point we we could make an exit and and that would be fine you know and so it was good for mike cuz he went on to his retirement and he actually opened a consulting firm that just focuses on organizational health consulting nice. and then i got the opportunity to create a, a consulting firm that focused in on compliance which is what i learned when they said hey you're the health and safety officer and the risk manager officer and all, all the other titles, that yeah. they threw at you, <laughs> right, right. And here's the standards book. Hey, figure this out. So, um, so I love licensing and accreditation and operations and you know running an organization in in that way with those tenants, you know. And so, yeah, I was able to create a, a business around that, and um, and it's it's called um, it was called Weight Consulting Group, and really when I left Northbound, I, I just picked whatever name I could. And, Mm -hmm. and that was, and I wanted to get busy and, and not, you know, have my wife ever feel like, um, like I never wanted her to be in fear, you know, because I, I had worked at that job for 10 years. And so leaving and And just up and left. I did. Yeah, I did. It was very amicable and all that, but, uh, and it was for good reason, you know, to, to jump into this new opportunity and, but it was, it's, that's like jumping off a cliff it's there's a little fear there's a lot of um you know starting a business and mm-hmm. you starting a podcast i mean it's uh, there's there's risk involved with it. it may not work you know and you're vulnerable right you put yourself out there you're right. um you're showing the world who you are and that's uh that can be that can be scary so but just like early recovery where i said okay i'm going to put my head down i'm going to go after this you know i'm going to burn the ships right like they used to in war like literally they would they would sail to an island cuz they're going to war and the leaders would go back and burn the ships and they're like there's only one thing we're doing on this island it. is conquering we're it. conquering we're not exactly. running off in our ships wow that's right so so and i had that context in my mind i said okay let's just burn the ships and so i like um, that yeah burn the ships burn the ships man all in you know <laughs> if we do that with recovery like look what happens that's you know? true yeah, there's there is no turning back. So, um and and I think we need more of that. You know, a lot of people say, "Hey, relapse is part of the process." And, and it can be, you know, and it was it's a part of my story, but it certainly doesn't have to be, you know. So, no. Um, no, it definitely doesn't. So, anyways, yeah, kick, kicking off with this this uh, company, and and you know what a great excuse to to stay really busy and and maybe not participate in my own recovery, and and so I've I've had to, and especially during COVID, and right, and meetings going virtual and and stuff like that, but it's it's been a good opportunity for me to, um, you know, balance recovery with a new job, with family, mm-hmm. and. I was the operator of a treatment center for so long I've I really enjoyed not being the operator cuz when you're the operator you Oh, it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> it's yeah, a it's lot. just a lot to manage, you now, know, day to day. Was it a re- residential facility? Yeah, yeah, detox and residential and How many beds? Outpatient. Well, we had 100 120 beds at one time. Wow. Yeah, and then and we had locations in um, Seattle, Washington, locations in um, St. Louis, Missouri, and then Southern California. Wow! And we ultimately, because of some of these discriminatory ordinances, we and the slashing rates and stuff like that. But we had to contract and change the business model, and we we grew it for a long time, and it was it was quite you know a big organization. We had 190 staff at one time. Wow! So it was a lot to manage, and unfortunately, if if I could do it all of well, I can say this: it's much more comfortable growing a business than it is contracting a mm-hmm. business. Because when you're contracting, you're, unfortunately, you have to, people have to go, you know, people, right. when you don't have the uh, business there for people to participate in, they, they have to go somewhere else. And, you know, and it's better for them to get a check somewhere else. And so that was really tough for me is is uh, contracting the business. Mm-hmm. We had to let 40% of our staff go. And, uh, and but it was a good, Opportunity. I never had to go through that before, so I right. I walked through that, and the the business had moved into a um, eighty-seven bed detox and residential center where twenty beds were for detox and sixty-seven were for residential, and that was a really also interesting challenge to get mm-hmm. through. Is you know because we had a, had different treatment centers kind of spread out, but when you change the model, it's like okay, well. You know, it's, it's almost like you can have the right team and you have the right staffing levels, but it was like getting the plays right. Like on a football team, right. you know, football field, like Cause this uh, the, the formation.
0: Something, yeah. Something that worked at a hundred bed facility may not work at a, a 60 bed. Or yeah.
1: Like when everybody's at one location, it was right. just, it was just different. So it was, it was a good challenge, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I, just, I learned so much, you know, during that time and, and, and we helped, we helped a lot of people, and so, um, so today I, so here's what happened really was I, uh, I had a, have you ever heard of a natal chart reading?
0: Is that for, uh, like a pregnancy?
1: No, it's like, a, um, it's, it's kind of like a horoscope on steroids. So yeah. what had happened. Oh, I'm, is, well, I'm, I'm, that was like, I'm thinking prenatal. Yeah. Like, natal. <laughs> it's that name, you know, it, it sounds.
0: But so horoscope. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: So, so my sponsor, who's a wonderful man and he's, um, He's the chief technology officer of Hewlett Packard Enterprises. Uh, we started doing a podcast together mm-hmm. and and he has a coaching business. What, what, what was the name again? It's called Motive for Life. Motive for Life. Okay. That's right. Yeah. And you can find right. it on Apple, you know, and and the different channels and all that. But, and, and I'm not on all of them with him, but the whole thing with that podcast, it was just two men talking about self worth and you just don't hear that too often. No. You know, it, yeah. No, at all, really. And so, so yeah, I've uh, you know th- th- through that and before that, uh, I-, I meant to mention this, but with doing the organizational health stuff at Northbound, we had sent thirty percent of our staff to a place called Onsite out in Tennessee. And um, no, 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 I
0: believe Gavin talked about Onsite in his previous episode here. But yeah. do you want to give us a little um, back background or explanation of on- for the listeners who don't know what sure. what Onsite is?
1: Yeah, so Onsite is a place where. You go to do some pretty deep work. It's basically like a year's worth of therapy packed into one week, and so it's 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 called an intensive for that reason. And so they they'll do lecture in the morning, and it's done beautifully. They they screen everybody so they get the right people there, and um, and and so that tees up the the situation right. And then they they put you with the right therapist. And then they set off a wonderful lecture that tees you up for this great group process, and and you end up doing experiential work while you're there. Mm-hmm. And I had heard about like psychodrama and experiential therapy, and, and you know I've worked in the treatment industry, and and so I and I'd seen it happen. In fact, we used to have come over to our treatment center on the weekends. This group would do it, and you hear them like yelling and banging things. And I was kind of like, oh, that's kind of weird. Like I'm not sure that's for me, you know. But right. But they told me about it, and I, and so I, so I was like willing to give it a shot, and I, I knew it would be good for me. And at that moment, I was dealing with overworking. I, I wasn't. I was. I had my first son, just had my second son, and I wanted to quit smoking. And I felt really guilty for I had quit when my first son was born, started smoking again. My second son was born, and I didn't quit smoking. And I just had a lot of guilt around that because I didn't want them to be exposed to the chemicals, you know, and, right. and yeah, just yeah. knowing that they're on my, my shirt and, and all that. And I had, this was a 2016, so I had a number of years sober at that time. But anyways, I was able to quit smoking out there cuz they don't let you smoke and uh, and and so, you know, I could tell a story behind that, but that was one gift that did, I got. Did
0: you go through like a like a detox when
1: you quit? Oh smoking? man, I tell you, like it, I had quit smoking before, but that mm. one I actually had withdrawal. Like really? I, I felt sick, my body hurt, you know, and I did I quit with the patch, which I had quit with the patch before, but I've stayed quit. So, um so that was uh yeah, in 2000, sort of whatever that is, you mm-hmm. know, I'm, I'm not, I should be keeping track of it, but, but I'm not, which I think is actually good, <laughs> because I, I've, I've, I just want to just be a non-smoker, you know? Right, right. So, uh, but then this experiential therapy, they, we're sitting in a group, and this is where you, you, you paint a situation, and they call it a, uh, a sculpt, and so you can sculpt out a situation. Mm. And the therapist knew what I was dealing with. And he said, okay, well, there's Ethan and there's Liam. These are my two sons at the time. Tell them what you need to tell them. And I just lost it. You know, it was just like every bone in my body was, was feeling guilty for working too much and not being present in their lives as much as I felt like I needed to be. And so I'm I'm just, you know, I was all in at that moment in time. So. Right. I had a wonderful experience, and that. that was some deep work that I did. And then the work that I've done with my sponsor um, moving forward, and, and really what I found was that I, I suffer from a lack of self-confidence. And when I say suffer is that I, I do it to myself, you know. And, uh, and it's interesting because I, I'm the type of guy that, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm a pretty humble guy. And, uh, and that I can help a lot of people, but unfortunately, when I don't think highly of myself, or I worry about the way that I look, or the way I dress, or gosh, what, what did that person say, or what did that person think that I said, then I'm thinking of myself the entire time. And I, I'm not doing me any, dis- any service because I'm, I'm thinking negatively about myself all the time, Right. And so I discovered that about me, that I needed to do more work in that area, about how I perceive myself and and the thoughts that went through my head. So this is something that I, I wanted to make sure I touched on in this podcast, but the 12 steps got me far, and I actively work the 12 steps on a regular basis, and I help other um, men go through the 12 steps and I, I have a, a home group that I attend and and it's wonderful for me, you know, and I've made wonderful, wonderful connections and and live and breathe the 12 steps and, and Alcoholics Anonymous. But I realized after going to onsite that there was more work for me to do. And so I, I ended up seeing a therapist for a whole year after that. and And that was really good for me where I was able to realize that that I had a lot of negative thoughts running through my head a lot of the time and and so the work I started doing with my sponsor was like well you know there's a ton of good books out there like um the the science of getting rich and sometimes people don't like that name cuz they're like oh well rich right like but rich can be more than just money right monetary right. so we're talking about you know whatever wealth is to you and wealth to me is of course money cuz it affords me you know the ability to to do things that I want to do and help other people, but also, you know richness and health and richness and my connection with my higher power and richness with my um, relationship with my family and others and friends and all that. So um, so being a practitioner of of believing that your thoughts are manifested, we started doing things like mantras and teaching people how to do mantras, which were basically, Claim what you want and say that out loud often.
0: Like almost like a speak it into existence Mm -hmm. type of thing. Okay.
1: Yeah. So like my mantra is that, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a man in recovery. You know, I have a a beautiful life. I, um, love my children. They love me. I am leaving a legacy for them that, that will improve their lives. Mm -hmm. I'm leaving a legacy in the the field, the treatment field, I'm the owner of Circa Behavioral Health, and and, and we're helping individuals change their lives, and and I, I meant to mention this, but with my sponsor, we we uh, this was a neat project, but we create we're creating a whiteboard pen, and uh, I, interesting, I won't, I won't go into the detail about that, but I've I've become an inventor, you know, a oh, whiteboard and, pen, a whiteboard pen, and it's the whiteboard pen that you'll never throw away. And it's called Palace Pins. And so if you huh. ever get the opportunity to, to check it out, I urge you to go to Palace Pins, P-A-L-L-A-S-Pins.com. And uh, they're not on market yet, but they're about to be. And so it's a refillable whiteboard pen. And we connected on this level because he's from the technology world; they do a lot of whiteboarding. Right. And then I'm of the belief that in the treatment world, when you draw out something visually to a client and you have them work on, on a whiteboard, work out a problem on their own, that, that that's really impactful so visual communication is is extremely important in my opinion and absolutely so,
0: uh, you know what's funny too is when i run when i run groups for my outpatient yeah the whiteboard's like a safety blanket oh okay you know yeah. it's like i i i when i don't entirely know what i want to talk about i bring out the whiteboard and for some reason yeah. just writing stuff down on the whiteboard for the clients while i'm talking and while they're 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 opening up and doing their process and everything like that yeah. it just it does something i don't yeah. know if i am sure i got a couple of listeners on here who are, are outpatient counselors or residential counselors yeah try the whiteboard man definitely it's well, a game changer
1: and give the the client or have them what's most powerful is they say i need to go up to the whiteboard and oh, do yeah. something on my own and, and work something out you know whether you're drawing something out or they're working through something, you know, and so.
0: Endless possibilities with the
1: whiteboard. Endless possibilities. <laughs> and so this, this pin is a refillable um, replacement uh, cartridge. And so it's, it's beautiful because it's, it's 50% less plastic than an Expo. Mm-hmm. So it's cutting down on the waste in the environment. And in fact, whiteboard pins contribute to a ton of, of plastic waste. Secondly, it is um, 50% more ink. <clears throat> and then the cartridge itself costs less than an Expo so you you get way more. So anyways, we we created that pin we, we just and, and I manifest we manifested that. and so I saw that you know we would do little mantras on the pin that mm-hmm. I'm, we're the creator of the best whiteboard pin in the world, the pin that people aren't going to throw away. and we actually That's had such s- a good uh tagline yeah, yeah yeah the whiteboard pin you never, never throw, throw away, away. yeah because they all i mean just literally we're looking at a whiteboard right now but you open up that expo marker and that thing has a clock and it's yeah you know it's just a matter of time before that runs out and you throw it into the trash mm. so anyways you know manifesting what we want in life is is something that i became a practitioner of and just quickly to tie it back into my family, the, what, what this really hit me on on two levels. One was during that natal chart reading, I did this when I was starting the business, and the gentleman that I sat down with and did this reading is, he just interprets the the planets, you know, during, and it's just a tool, right, to use, but this is what happened exactly when you're born, and so this can make you who you are, and you can choose to believe it or not, but he asked me, he goes, do you work with people? He didn't know me at the time. He's like, do you work with people in jail? I said, no, but here's what I do. And, uh, and he said, well, it really looks like you want to protect vulnerable people or people that are living, you know, in, in the margins that, that need protection. And I said, you know, you're right. And he, he told me the thing that you have a, a North node and a South node. And without going into much detail, your north node is what you're aiming for, and your south node is what's behind you or where really kinda of anchors you. And he said, Well your south node is your family, and your north node is is career and success in helping others and specifically helping people that are vulnerable and and you know being successful at doing that, really successful at doing that. I said, that's beautiful, you know? And so that's really what birthed my consulting business was I said, I'm going to help people, you know, through compliance to make sure fraud and abuse isn't happening through, um, operations to make sure that that it's run well so that they can have a good experience. And then through organizational health, because they deserve that, you know, when the staff are healthy, the clients get better, faster.
0: Absolutely. 100% when the, the staff is one if they're in recovery and they're working a solid program it it bleeds into client care it fl- or flows into client care absolutely. like you would not believe yeah absolutely you can it's it, it's one of the few things where like especially when I was in rehab when the rehab counselor was having a bad day you could tell Oh yeah, the whole vibe of the group was off. Exactly. It was bad.
1: Yeah, it sucked the air out of the, out of the so group. Fast. Room, you know, so fast. <laughs> yeah, so that's good. I'm glad you recognize it. Secondly, my father um, is the only child of of my grandmother and, and grandpa. And uh, the reason why is because one of his brothers died of disease and his other brother died of a fatal accident. Unfortunately, he got shot. He was a park ranger and there was a... A, a kid shooting guns and 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 a bullet hit him in the head. and he died instantly out in oh out gosh. in Arizona. So he he was the only son and uh, and my my father um, you know, is a wonderful, wonderful man, and he uh, um, he he really lives a life that I want to live. And what happened was when my grandfather died, he died of uh, cancer. He fought cancer for six years. And it was a cancer called sarcoma cancer. And it literally was a ball of cancer that grew inside of his of his stomach. Really? And my grandmother, after he had passed away, I remember sitting with her and she said, you know, Devin, your grandpa could never forgive losing his son and could never really forgive God for doing that. And, and she believes that that... Assisted really, or you know, caused the cancer to grow inside of him that he could just never forgive God for losing two sons. And so, you know, and that's that's that thinking, right? That that happens. And so ultimately, uh, you know, I've I've learned that the thoughts that go through your head impact everything, they impact your health, they impact your relationships, they impact um, your ability to be successful. So I've, I've really become a practitioner of, of healthy thinking. And, you know, through meditation, and I try to do this all the time, but meditation teaches us that we can be an observer of our thoughts. And so this is where recovery has brought me is, you know, of, of, of course, the 12 steps and living a beautiful life and, you know, make trying to make a legacy for my family and a legacy in the industry. But, you know, I, I, if I, if I could, leave the audience with anything it's it's having positive thoughts and the way I look at it is like for me it's like a conveyor belt where I've got like a bunch of apples going past and I grew up on an apple orchard and so that's why I think of apples but Every now and then there there's all these red apples, but the green one comes by, and that would be a negative thought. And today I just kind of flick it, just I, flick it right. I, off I recognize the it. Belt. I go, oh yeah, this is like a you know conveyor belt because all kinds of you know our thinking is. Yeah. Sometimes we need to you know ask God for reprieve from our own thinking, and uh, and and you know what's interesting is I I've always kind of thought about the twelve or the third step in that way where you know you you say. Um, You know, it's easy to to live better and to just stop hurting people, right? That's how you can turn your life over to the care of God as you understand Him, is just by by being a good person. And when we get sober, we inherently just do that, unless you're not living the principles, right? Right. But your will, like how do you turn your will over to the care of God as you understand Him? And what I learned is I really truly believe that part of my will or a big part of it is my thinking. So turning my thinking over to the care of God as I understand Mm -hmm. Him can really help me uh, live a beautiful life. And so, you know, being okay with, okay, it's okay that I can have a negative thought. You know, it just happens. We are who we are, but I can be the observer of it. I certainly don't have to dwell on it. You know, and we were talking about this, like one morning I woke up the other day and I realized for the last 30 minutes, I've been thinking this negative thought this entire time, but I caught myself. I flicked it off the conveyor belt and and I moved on. So I, I truly believe that, you know, setting those intentional thoughts and, and who you want to be, you know, what you want and set that bar high. And so I've, I've worked hard to install this into my boys because I believe that that's going to set them up for success. Absolutely. And I see that happen, you know, where they'll, they'll, one wants to be an actor and he sits there and he tells his brother how he's going to become an actor. He like literally, you know, point for point tells him this is how I'm going to become an actor. And I just like, I sit there and I go, you know, wow, that's a, that's amazing. Like whatever, like I feel that that's working. Right. And so, you know, sure enough, he's, he'll be an actor or whatever he wants to be. But that's so important that he's able to do that. And, and if he falls into trouble, he knows that there's a way out and, uh, and that his thoughts impact everything. So, so anyways, that's, uh. That's just, uh, that's, that's really where recovery is, has brought me is, you know, living a beautiful life and, uh, and doing that, that deeper work all the way from the work of identifying myself and what I need to do and who I am being comfortable with me and then realizing that, that you know, it's a, it's a discipline to, you know, to act on our conscious, right? Because once we have it, we can't shake it. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then, you know, live a beautiful life and give it back at the same time. Wow. You know,
0: and I think too that everything, this is just my opinion too, but I I really like the way you worded it, but just like, you know, our like us becoming like and us creating these better lives for ourselves, it always starts with our thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, they say put the neck the fir, put your put your what is it? Your first foot forward, right? Into into right action. But I think that first foot is our our thought. Yeah. You know, our thoughts and our, you know, and by, by living, you know, positively or training our brains to like live positively or think positively, you know, will inevitably take us very far.
1: That's right. You know? Everything else will follow. That's right. That's right. Yeah.
0: So we're coming towards the end of the episode, but I want to, um, I want to give you this opportunity. Like I, it was, it's funny. because I was thinking about this. I was like, man, you've just you've dropped so many like golden nuggets throughout the episode, (laughs) but I always give the last, like the last, um, you know, minute or two of the, of the podcast, um, give the guests an opportunity to, you know, drop a nugget of like, you know, for someone who may be newly sober, who's struggling or someone who's been sober for a while, who's struggling. What would you tell them if they didn't, let's say they just had a brain aneurysm and forgot the entire episode. What would be one thing that you would want them to take away?
1: That it's okay to be you, you know, and uh, and gift yourself with a beautiful life. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be you. It's okay for you to have a beautiful life. And go out and fucking get it. That's know? right. <laughs> yeah, that's get right. get some. <laughs> you know, burn the ships. Burn the ships. Yeah, wake up I in love the morning. Make, make the best out of every day and, yeah. Burn it. the ships. And, yeah, that's it. No looking back.
0: It'll be my mantra moving forward. That's it, man. Burn the ships. That's it. Yeah. I love it. I yeah. love it.
1: Meditate, and when you start to drift, burn the ships. Burn the ships. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you, Devin. I yeah, pre- I appreciated this. You know, this episode, and um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, you know, send the episode off like we normally do. But before that, I just want to give a huge shout out to all the listeners. Um, you know, everyone who follows the podcast um, on, on Instagram, um, who rocks the shirts, um, and everyone who just listens, man, you guys are, you guys make this podcast. Um, you know, you, like I say this every episode, you turn it from two dudes talking to themselves in microphones and you turn it into something amazing by all you guys listening. So I can't thank you guys enough. Um, you know, and, um, without further ado, no matter what you've done no matter where you come from you are lovable and you are forgivable so keep that in mind keep your head up and keep it moving peace